Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. John was just mentioning oil, Matt. I'm looking at Brent crude here, $67.64 a barrel, up about 1.84%. Plus, you know, I also mentioned earlier, Matt, that article I saw on Bloomberg Terminal, $4 a gallon uh, to fill up your car if you live in the state of California. Energy pushing higher. Let's get behind the drivers of this crucial commodity. We do that with Regina, Regina Mayer, global energy head for KPMG. Regina, thanks so much for joining us here. We're seeing energy prices move up, oil move higher. Is this simply a demand play here as more and more vaccines get into arms on a global basis? The expectation is that the demand for oil will be rising as well. Clearly, it is a big a big part of the story is demand and how quickly demand has recovered. I, you know, prices are incredible and very buoyant, but I, I like to take people back to where were we one year ago this month yep. when WTI settled in, in negative territory, and now look at where we are. And I think there's still upward momentum uh, because we're seeing – some potential supply disruptions, and it's still a question of how quickly OPEC Plus is going to bring back those surplus barrels into the market. And in addition, the world seems to have worked through the billion-plus supply overhang that we predicted a year ago. So I'm excited. It's very buoyant. I wouldn't have predicted these fundamentals even six months ago, but uh, the industry is quite, quite favorable. How much of uh, crimp on demand is the tragedy that we're seeing play out in India? Truly a tragic event. Um, and, and that will have an impact on global demand. But I think the, the overall global demand story from places like the U.S. and China are overcoming the tragedy that we're seeing in India, as well as you know, the challenges that we're seeing in other strong fuels markets like Brazil. The market seems to be very bullish that demand will continue to increase. We've got summer driving season coming up. We've got summer vacation season coming up. People are trying to, countries are trying to look at ways that they can open up their borders. So even my refining clients that were pretty pessimistic about gasoline demand return and jet fuel demand return are, are actually quite optimistic as they look into 2021 and, and definitely into 2022. All right, Regina. So... The demand side seems pretty solid, improving. Let's talk about the supply side here. Talk to us about OPEC Plus and the pressure on some of those key members of OPEC Plus to start ramping up production. Yeah, so it's interesting that OPEC Plus decided not to have the meeting that they were going to have today. I think that shows that they're very confident in their strategy mm. and they're very confident in the commitment that they have on the part of the uh, members to retain the cuts and slowly trickle those barrels back into the market. Um, there is still, even after the 2 million barrels per day come back into the market that they've committed will come back by the end of July, there's still 6 million barrels per day that they're still sitting on. So that is the governor against a, a huge price spike, uh, and how they trickle that back will be, will be interesting. The $60 range that we're in now is – not enough to balance the budgets of all of those OPEC plus nations, but it is a nice buffer that's building on their financial reserves. But I, I could see them trying to push it to see, can we get Brent over the $70 mark before we start more actively putting those withheld barrels back into the market? 
What do OPEC nations need to balance the budget? The the most estimates are that it's uh, in the 80s um, for most of the countries. So, I, But I don't think the world can survive that. I think there will be a lot of pressure on the OPEC plus countries. You, you already saw it um, a couple of months ago with calls from uh, the Biden administration into Saudi Arabia, as well as calls from the Indian government into Saudi Arabia, that we can't have crude oil price be too hot. You, you mentioned that it's $4 per gallon in California. The average retail price for gasoline in the U.S. right now is almost $3, and that's for all grades in all markets. So I think we're sort of at that tipping point. 70 for Brent might be as high as people feel comfortable, um, but I think they're really enjoying threading the needle by keeping things relatively stable in the high 60s, which makes them more comfortable with their forward-looking position. $3 a gallon would be a dream come true for me here in Berlin. I would drive so much if I had $3 (laughs) per gallon. What is it, $8 a barrel? It's it's, it's about seven and change, I think, right? It's, um, I mean, I tank up with Shell V-Power, of course, because I care about my engine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So let's talk um, about the shale patch. Uh, Are we going to start to see some of these shale patch producers ramping up production and maybe mucking up the, uh, the works a little bit? I don't think so. And, you know, you never say never with the with uh, U.S. exuberance around oil production right? that's in our DNA. And I sit in Texas, and I definitely don't pay as much as you do for your gasoline. Um, but they are making commitments to their shareholders that the uh, the returns above, some have even said above $40 per barrel, will be returned in terms of dividend growth to their shareholders. That could be a very strong message if we take those profits and instead of funneling it all into CapEx, we pay down debt and we return that cash to the shareholders in the form of dividends. That's the story that all of the large ones have told to the marketplace for 2021, and I expect them to hold to that. Uh, and I think OPEC Plus will be watching rig counts and U.S. activity. Rig counts have held, held very stable. Uh, so most predictions are we might get to uh, 12 million barrels per day by the end of 2021. But I don't think we'll see the 13 million barrels per day or higher and the exuberance that we saw in the shale pe- patch to, quote, muck up the works, as you put it. Exactly. By the way, I sit in Berlin, which is why my gas prices are so high. Um, <laughs> Regina, let me just ask you quickly. We only got 30 seconds here. But – Um, Having noted that, does the electric vehicle push do anything to hurt demand in the near term? Not in the near term. Uh, It only degrades about um, 200,000 gallons of total fuel. And so we only see maybe a million to a couple million barrels per day coming off in the next five years from EV penetration. So it's just a drop in the proverbial bucket. I see. All right. Well, that's what I thought, but I just wanted to get it confirmed by the experts. There are a, a bunch of electric vehicles whizzing around here, but obviously it's not even close to um, the majority, not not even close to half. You see, I, a, I, I tell you, when, I, when I'm in California, I see a lot more. They're really much more prevalent. Well, maybe California is the future, man. Well, they got $4 gas. <laughs> Regina, thanks very much for joining us. Regina Mayer, their global energy head at KPMG, talking to us about um, this commodity price. The, the, the gains may be transitory. We're waiting for Fed Chair Jay Powell. This is Bloomberg. Let's bring in now Stephen Kane. He is the Group Managing Director and a Portfolio Manager at TCW. They have about $253 billion in assets under management. I, I know Paul, when he was working 
in the finance sector. A used must, to a must stop, meeting when you go to LA. Stop out there every time he was <laughs> on the on the best coast. Stephen, um, big day today, right? Because we had kicked off the day with news about the Biden tax plan, which is very big, and we're going to finish the the session with the Fed. Um, these two pillars, to me, seem key for your business. What do you make of the current environment? Uh, well, what I would say, I, I think you're, you're dead on. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I think the bigger point is we think about the markets in general is uh, the markets are always affected by fiscal and monetary policy. But I think given the degree of involvement of the government uh, currently, not only in the uh, COVID era, but uh, as we move forward, and the degree of involvement by the Fed, I don't think the capital markets have ever been as, as driven and influenced um, by, uh, by policy right now. So um, in terms of today and what's going on, um, you know, I don't think there's much to talk about in terms of the Fed. I think it's, it's going to be a bit of a snoozer. I wouldn't hold uh, your breath for anything significant out of the Fed. The Fed is extremely dovish. They've changed their framework, as they've articulated uh, numerous times, to be outcome-driven and not outlook-driven. Uh, and therefore, given that inflation is running far below the 2-plus percent that they're looking to see for a sustained period and unemployment at 6 percent, um, it would be shocking to see the Fed do anything but maybe tweak the language on, um, on the current you know, statements around the current economic environment. Um, on the fiscal side, um, yeah, this is developing. Uh, it seems to be one big package after another. What's changing now is those packages are now being balanced uh, to some degree with uh, uh, potential tax increases, and we'll just have to see how things go. But if it goes in this direction, uh, not to get too uh, 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 you know uh, loud about this, but uh, you know we could be entering an era of bigger government, um, and, you know, that could have bigger implications for, for the economy long term. All right. So given where we are in the cycle here, Stephen, we have this reopening trade, if you will. We have an accommodate date of Federal Reserve. We have fiscal stimulus, perhaps partially offset by taxes. What are some of the sectors that TCW is looking at? I know in your unconstrained uh, uh, fund, you do top down, but also a lot of bottoms up work as well. Yeah, yeah. So, Kind of the good news, bad news for um, for the credit sectors is that uh, the good news is we do have significant fundamental tailwinds in terms of strong economic growth and good operating leverage for businesses. There's going to be a lot of good earnings and cash flow and all those good things that tend to support risk taking. The bad news is that's already in the markets. Uh, spreads are extremely tight. The the overall yield in the high yield market is. Uh, just under 4%. So you're really not getting paid uh, for, for taking a ton of risk. So as we look at sectors, um, we are uh, up in quality just uh, due to the value. And um, one of the sectors that we think offers probably the best risk return is the highest quality sector outside of treasuries, which is agency mortgage-backed securities. And the reason for that is that it's a Fed-controlled asset. Um, they're buying $40 billion a month and therefore really controlling the price and the spread. And then uh, the second reason and what makes them really attractive to us is to buy them in the forward or TBA market, where due to the fact that the Fed's buying up all the net supply of uh, production of agency mortgages, uh, the financing rate to to not own the mortgages but roll them in forward in the forward market is extremely attractive. It's, it's minus 70 basis points. So you're picking up 
one and a half to two percent spread to treasuries for a risk-free credit risk-free asset that is uh, controlled by the Fed. That's you know double the spread that you get for investment grade corporate bonds. So we'd start there, and then from there we would uh, you know go to other areas of the securitized market where you can <clears throat> stay relatively high in quality, double A, triple A in the non-agency mortgage market, in the CLO market, collateralized loan obligation, um, and you can get spreads in the mid 100. You know, far better than you can do in the uh, corporate bond market with, uh, uh, you know, with reasonable volatility. When is the Fed um, going to be interesting? What, you know, we, we had um, some people start to talk about talking about tapering and expecting that to happen towards the end of this year. Does that time frame make sense to you? You know, I think it's. I, I think it depends on what happens in the economy and with inflation. Um, Fair enough. People tend to be focusing on the uh, the Jackson Hole uh, meeting or uh, time period is when they might start to introduce it, and, and certainly that's as good a time frame as any. But it really sort of depends on how things go. I think the Fed is if the mark if financial conditions stay loose. Um, I think the Fed will probably sit on its hands as long as it wants. If things uh, start to get volatile or the market starts to um, worry right. about inflation more than today, you could you could see the Fed uh, move that time frame up a little bit. Hey, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your insights and thoughts there. Stephen Kane, Group Managing Director, Portfolio Manager uh, at TCW. As more and more people in this country get vaccinated, we're starting to see economic activity pick up, the reopening trade, if you will. We're starting to see that in the economic data. Are we seeing it on Main Street America? Let's check in with Don McCree. He is vice chairman and head of commercial banking for Citizens Financial Group. That's a New York Stock Exchange listed financial services company under the symbol CFG. Don, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get a feeling from you as you talk to your clients, the businesses, the small and mid-sized businesses that you guys deal with. Are they investing in their businesses? Are they seeing a pickup in business activity? Yeah, good to be here, Paul. Nice to talk to you again. Um, we, we're definitely seeing uh, indications across the board of, of companies coming out of their dormancy stage, stages, I would call it. Um, not not huge amounts of investment going on, but beginning to uh, see it in the form of a little bit more loan growth than we had seen before, um, and certainly seeing it in terms of the results of companies. Results are generally coming in broadly much stronger than we expected as, as revenue lines recover um, and companies begin to uh, get back to business. And of course, it's it's at different speeds in different parts of the country, um, with uh, with some of the southern states opening more quickly due to outdoor activity. Um, in the northern states, but we're seeing it up north also. What kind of loan demand are you seeing, and what kind of loan demand do you forecast throughout the year? You know, loan, loan, loan demand on the commercial side has been relatively muted, and I think part of that is due to the significant securities issuance that have taken place over the last uh, year or so. Companies are pretty flush with liquidity, particularly the mid-sized companies, um, and there's lots of deposits sitting in the banking system. So what I would expect is to see some of that excess liquidity burned down before we begin to see loan demand. What our, what our base case is, is really the second half of the year we expect to see uh, loan growth on the, on the commercial side. We are seeing quite significant transactional activity, uh, both in support of, uh, of M&A and then other corporate events that are beginning to materialize. So really record activity in the syndicated loan markets and continued record, record activity in the, uh, in the bond markets. Don, I'd love to get a sense of kind of maybe the credit quality out there. It's been obviously a very difficult 
uh, period for corporate America. What's the credit quality of your portfolio right here? Are you seeing any uh, cracks in there? Uh, it's, it feels good. It feels a lot better than it felt a year ago. Right. Um, and you saw most banks, including us, release reserves in the first quarter. And that's an indication that uh, the credit is, is improving across the board. We still have a ways to go in things like, you know, service businesses like hotels and restaurants who are only beginning to recover as the vaccines uh, take, take hold across the country. But we're seeing every indicator of credit is improving. And, you know, we had, you know, billions and billions on watch a year ago, and that's down by about 75% in terms of a total amount of credit that we're, we're, we're still working through the, the back ends of, uh, of the pandemic risks. What do your net interest margins look like, and, and what can you do in, a, in an environment like this? You know, we, we, we're very deliberate around how we price credit. Our, our net interest margin actually held up well in the first quarter um, as, we, as we achieved slightly better spreads on our lending than we expected to uh, by being disciplined, but really because we were able to lower our deposit costs aggressively. Um, and with the, with the amount of liquidity that's in the system, both on the consumer side and on the commercial side, um, there's just a, a very attractive deposit uh, uh, cost to, to financial institutions right now. You know, that could compress a little bit as we go forward, but we're very focused on maintaining that interest margin. And, of course, if you see a little bit of uptick in the tenure like we're seeing over the last couple of weeks, that helps a little bit in terms of booing interest margin. Don, in, in your business, in the commercial banking business, are you guys looking for M&A opportunities to grow? Is that something that's in uh, in the space that you uh, compete in? Is that something you're looking to do as a strategic uh, a vision going forward? Yes. Yeah, so, so a couple different things. We, we actually have acquired three merger and acquisition firms over the last three years. Um, our M&A activity for our clients is at record levels right now. Um, it's, it's really concentrated in uh, changes of ownership uh, where private companies are selling themselves to take advantage of what is relatively attractive multiples and very, very attractive financing markets. So the macros uh, on, the, uh, on the client side are quite good and, uh, and on the M&A side are, are quite good right now. Uh, for us, we're, we're really focused on you know, small add-ons to the portfolio like we've been doing. Uh, we're constantly looking, and, and what we really try to do is, is build industry expertise by bringing on corporate finance and M&A expertise that we can differentiate with our clients versus competition. Don, what about clients who want to avoid the step-up basis changes? I mean, um, these tax plan changes are significant, must be significant to your wealthy clients and institutions. Yeah, they, you know, they, they're, they're, they're proposals at this point, so they're, they're, we'll see where they land. But I would expect some, some form of increase of taxes. It's definitely accelerating things on the M&A side. So if we were in a, if we were in a uh, robust market before the proposals that came out of the administration, I think people are looking to um, to if if they're sellers, they're looking to sell their companies probably within the calendar year of 2021. Don, thanks so much. Great to get your insight. You have a, a really unique point of view that I think is helpful f- for everybody looking at this market. Don McCree is the vice chair and the head of commercial banking at Citizens Financial Group. Really a policy day today in addition to earnings, Matt. You know, we've got the Federal Reserve at two, as John was just mentioning, which Bloomberg will bring you, uh, as well as President Biden's speech at 9 p.m. Wall Street time. Again, Wall Street, uh, Bloomberg will be bringing that to you. Uh, so a lot of policy initiatives here that are likely to have a, you know, pretty significant impact on this economic recovery as this reopening uh, begins to really accelerate here in the U.S. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's check in right now with someone who knows a little bit more about um, the policy and effects. Casey Matthews joins us, Chief Investment Officer at UMB, on what we could get from these tax changes. Casey, I want to start first with the with the arguments. Um, if this had happened 10 years ago, you would have heard freshwater economists go absolutely nuts with the jump in a capital gains tax, even if it is for people who earn more than a million dollars a year. But as it is, it doesn't seem like there are any more freshwater economists, with any clout at least. All of the economists who have influence these days are um, of the saltwater variety or <laughs> more um, Keynesian. So it, where is the pushback on this? Well, good morning. You know, I, I don't think there's much pushback because our takeaway is taxes don't drive economic activity. There's all kinds of data out there. Even though every cycle, you know, you talk about years ago, every economic cycle, every potential tax policy change has its own set of nuances. But yet we know, and economists know, that one, the academic research says tax policy doesn't drive economic activity, and we can use the fiscal multiplier to prove that, and that is the bang for the buck that each government, uh, that the government spends for stimulus. Right? What happens if they spend a dollar? Do we get more than a dollar of economic activity? And the data shows us that, lo and behold, direct purchases of goods and services has the highest potential, the biggest bang for its buck to stimulate the economy. The lowest initiative would be corporate tax cuts and tax cuts for um high wage earners. So this stuff doesn't impact economic activity at all. It's not a catalyst. It's not a driver. All right, Casey, how much do you think uh, these tax increases, the proposed tax increases, are economically based, i.e. to pay uh, in part for President Biden's fiscal stimulus uh, plans? And how much is maybe social, i.e. trying to deal with the income inequality Uh, wealth inequality, the redistribution type of um, issue. How do you think about that? Well, I would go back and look at the empirical evidence that we've seen tax policy changes before. And some of these things just, um, I think it was Mark Twain who said, maybe uh, history doesn't repeat itself, maybe it rhymes. But we we hear a lot of rhyming (laughs) right now, right? So back in uh, 1993, it was President Clinton who changed the highest marginal tax bracket for individuals from 31% to 39.6. He bumped up corporate taxes a little bit, right? So I don't know. I think it was for economic reasons. We was trying to do. That was the Deficit Reduction Act of 1993. And lo and behold, it had little impact on the economy and no impact on markets. And we saw it again in 2013. Of course, President Obama changed the top marginal tax bracket uh, on those making over $400,000 a year. So you can see this rhyming. And even in 19, or pardon me, 2013, I mentioned that these cycles have their own nuances. The 10-year Treasury rate went from 1.75% to 3% that year, which you would think would be negative for markets, negative for economic growth. So I would probably be in the economic camp. I think what they're trying to do is just pay for the stimulus to make sure we um, – get out of the COVID recession, stay out of it, and get back to a sense of normalcy. One of the things, one of the changes we're likely to see, we just spoke with Don McCree over at Citizens Financial, and he told us, 
private companies now are looking to to sell in this calendar year a lot of them to avoid things like step up basis changes you know if you're going to get dinged or your kids are going to get dinged when you when you pass it on to them you may as well just sell and and deal with it in a different way do you see that kind of behavior changing some of it yes of course, with these uh, smaller family-owned business, I don't think it's driven again by uh, capital gain taxes or the elimination of the stepped-up cost basis. The family wants to run the business and they feel good about it. They're just going to row harder, if you will, pay some more tax and row harder. But I would tell you the, the uh, empirical evidence suggests you see some behavior changes. So back in 1996, when capital gain tax rates were increased, you saw realized capital gains surge by 60%. And this is in the public markets. And the same thing in 2012, where there was a change in the capital gain tax rate. Realized gains increased by 40%. So yes, you do see a slight change of behavior when you have some of these tax policy changes. But you don't so see no a drop in investment, because that's the concern, the sort of Austrian concern. Not at all, because here's the thing. I mean, of course, when we talk to our clients, a lot of small business owners, if, if the tax policy change changes to some degree, are they going to sell risk-based assets? Would you think about it just using the S&P 500 as a proxy? Last year, we made 18%. This year, we're up 11 You're going to sell those assets to avoid some type of tax to, what, go buy a 10-year treasury at 1.6% 10-year yield? Right. I don't think right. so. All right. Very interesting. We will pay attention certainly to the Fed this afternoon and obviously President Biden tonight to get a handle on his tax plans. Casey Matthews, economist and chief investment officer for UMB Bank, giving us his thoughts. And certainly we will cover both of those later on today and this evening. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.